I'm Elika Burma, and you're listening to a podcast hosted by the Accelerating Achievement for Africa's Adolescence Hub, based at the University of Cape Town and the University of Oxford. This is the first podcast in the second series, recorded in 2021. Hello, I'm pleased to introduce this Accelerate Hub podcast on narrative intervention and motivation. It's the first in our second series of podcasts on subjects related to intervention and storytelling in African contexts. My name is Elika Burma and I'm a writer and a novelist, as well as being the co-lead of Work Package 3 in the Accelerate Hub. I'm also a professor of world literature and English at the University of Oxford. I'm delighted to be joined by three experts on narrative and intervention, each of whom approach these topics from their own particular expertise relating to education, psychology, storytelling, and motivation. I'll introduce them in a moment. A word on the Accelerate Hub, based at the University of Oxford and the University of Cape Town, funded by the UKRI GCRF. The Accelerate Hub's goal is to improve outcomes for 20 million adolescents in 34 countries across Africa. It sets out to achieve this by identifying interventions that have the potential to improve multiple outcomes related to the UN's Sustainable Development Goals. Joining me in this conversation about narrative, motivation, and intervention are Alude Mahale, Robert Muponde, and Tamsin Rashar. I'd like to take a moment to introduce them in alphabetical order. Alude Mahale is a Chief Research Specialist in the Inclusive Development Program at the HSRC in South Africa. Her research experience ranges from youth social justice work to using participatory methodologies for work in the sociology of education. She's published research reports and book chapters, including in Studying While Black, as well as journal articles on Black women-centered collectives and Black women activism. Robert Muponde is a critic, editor, writer, and literary scholar. He's professor of English in the School of Literature, Language, and Media at the University of Witwatersrand in South Africa. Robert's first book was Some Kinds of Childhood, and his new book is The Lively, The Scandalous Times of a Book Louse, published earlier in 2021. In it, he explores interventions that alter reading habits and critical thinking among African children. Tamsin Rochard is a Wellcome Trust Intermediate Fellow in Public Health and Tropical Medicine at the Center of Excellence in Human Development at the University of the Witwatersrand. Tamsin is a clinical psychologist and has led many randomized controlled trials of parenting and mental health interventions, including the Amagugu intervention. She'll be touching on this work here. In her current work, she leads the UNICEF WHO Caring for the Caregiver Package, and she has established the Beacon Cohort. Alude, Robert, and Tamsin, thank you so much for joining me in this conversation today. Together, we're going to explore how motivation and storytelling helps to ground interventions in particular contexts and helps to make them relatable for people. 
So to begin, I'd like to come to each of you in turn and ask about your experience with narrative or story as a means of teaching, encouraging and motivating people. Beginning with you, Elude, how in your work do stories help to deliver a message or facilitate an intervention? Thanks, Alika. I'm happy to be here today. Um, well, I'm sure some of us have heard the TED talk with Chimamanda Ngozi Adichie, where she talks about the danger of a single story. Um, the danger of a single story as robbing people of dignity um, because it makes our recognition of our equal humanity difficult. So I'm approaching storytelling in the context of socio-historic intervention. And for me, the greater example of countering a single story, a very damaging single story than the hashtag movement Black Girl Magic. Um, and this really developed because there was an increased global desire by and from Black women to connect with other Black women for identification, um, promotion of well-being, protection, um, to for social justice issues as a form of creative expression, creating um, spaces of radical self-care and just as a community building exercise. So for me in my context in South Africa, how I've seen kind of the, the, the lived uh, manifestation of, of this movement is through the rise of black women-centered collectives um, who are crafting these unapologetic spaces centered um, very deliberately on the lives and lived experiences of Black women to counter, um, you know, these historical narratives where we have been marginal. And I use we as a Black woman who also writes about Black women and who involves myself, um, who include, who, who I include myself in this movement. Um, also, you know, already in the late 60s, when we think about in South Africa, the Black consciousness movement, Biko was already in Black consciousness defining um, what would be the kind of antecedent of, of, of Black girl magic, Black consciousness as this inward looking process that rejects whiteness and instills in the Black community um, self-determination and pride. But also really critical, I think, to this Black girl magic movement is poet and writer um, Audre Lorde's um, work, um, whose early writings on Black radical thought and on women organizing together with Biko kind of form this um, antecedent to what these growing collectives um, I see doing and uh, I, what these growing collectives in South Africa are doing. So in a world that seeks to devalue the contributions of Black women, um, this hashtag becomes this necessary testimony of self-affirmation, of revolutionary work, of telling your own stories and telling our own stories that young Black women are doing for and by themselves in their own spaces the world over. Um, the hashtag becomes this really powerful global tool that explains the ways in which recognition of Black merit or Black excellence intersects with social justice, um, promotes positive acknowledgement, and celebrates the physical beauty of, of Black women in a world that otherwise invisibilizes the Black and brown body or 
objectifies it. So Black Girl Magic is this virtual space that attempts to alter the dominant narrative that holds white supremacy as definitive. Um, and it says, since we, our Black women's shared humanity has been proven historically insufficient, it's time now to tell our own stories and identify and revel in what is distinctive, what is enough, and what is magic about Black girls and women. Fantastic, Aluda, that's so interesting. Uh, I, there are a number of threads there, it would be great to pick up on, but, uh, but first to move now to Robert and to talk about how stories and storytelling has worked in your practice, Robert. Uh, thank you very much, Eleke. I've been involved in at least uh, two major uh, uh, storytelling intervention projects. One of them uh, a few years ago here in, in Johannesburg, it was called the African Storybook and funded um, in such a way by South African Institute of Distance Education. So the idea was to collect as many stories as possible that were scattered around Africa, which were located within the oral storytelling tradition. The understanding was that children aren't reading enough and aren't reading much what, uh, of what is relevant to, to them uh, if we needed to intervene in terms of literacy. And there, I found out that I needed to intervene in my own way besides the research project or the collector's pro project, so to speak, because we're simply collecting stories, but not interpreting them. And I thought that there was a danger in simply collecting um, uh, with the understanding that you, the more we collect, the more uh, children read. And I thought that was a, it was problematic because it does not always translate into reading and what kind of reading that we do. So I wanted to think in terms of how collecting from the oral tradition and making it on the only source of storytelling um, was dangerous because the oral tradition can be overpowering and uh, can to some extent swallow the voices of children that need also to tell their own stories and the new stories may not emerge so I did a storytelling intervention of my own from there where I wanted to see how the individual voice of children uh, could be carved from that oral tradition. And we speak of innovation and how to, how to structure a voice that can rise above the weight of oral tradition so that we, we do really speak to individual children's uh, choices and voices. Then the second one, which is very recent in 2021, it is a Cadbury, you know, the milk chocolate uh, uh, company, uh, which uh, in partnership with Nali Bali uh, Trust, who are concerned more with the telling of children, uh, stories, uh, stories for children for enjoyment. Um, so they partnered up and came up with an idea about uh, it is called a reading for to succeed project. Um, it's a literacy project that argues that um, children read better when they can see themselves in the stories that you tell, which is true because uh, to some extent, if children read books that they do not relate with, they feel estranged and the message is missed. 
So, and then the other idea around Cadbury and Nullibury storing um, interventions is that if you introduce reading at a younger age, like under 10, and children read a lot, uh, for read uh, literature that is in their own languages and that is relevant to them, you can almost be assured of academic success in the future because reading competence is acquired at a much earlier stage, but also reading for pleasure should be acquired at an earlier stage uh, of, of one's life. So those are the stories that we uh, that, that they are trying to generate. And um, after having found out that 2% of books published in South Africa uh, for children, uh, only 2% of them are written in local languages. Uh, so, so they wanted to bridge that particular gap. So it's a literacy project that tries to intervene and correct the, uh, the imbalance that we find in our reading culture and reading success in South Africa. So that's in brief what I can say I, am, I was involved in this particular year. Um, and, and then the theme of the Cadbury and the Nalibari uh, project is that uh, about generosity and goodness so that we should be able to drive a particular moral uh, and a particular attitude when we tell stories about goodness and generosity, but without moralizing. Thanks. That, that was uh, a, a really key point, I think, uh, which also came through in uh, what Aluda was saying about Black women's stories, about the, the power of being able to see ourselves in the stories we hear and the stories that we listen to and read. Um, we will, I'm sure, pick up on that later. Um, I'd now, though, like to turn to Tamsin, our, our, our third uh, speaker, and, uh, and, and, and ask her for her take on narrative and motivation, Tamsin. Thank you, and it's great to participate today. Um, I come from a public health background and work mainly in public health. So I think um, within public health, we deal with our own set of stigmas and sort of ways of marginalizing, marginalizing voices in the interest of sort of inverted brackets health. Um, and I think COVID is, is a good example of that. Um, but I think there's often this motivate, this idea that people should be uniformly motivated to participate in a way with a medical intervention or a health objective. Um, and so I wanted to just spend some time today talking about an intervention that we developed in a rural part of South Africa that did have a storytelling element. Um, and it was focused on helping HIV positive mothers uh, disclose to their HIV negative children who were primary school age. Um, and the intervention had a lot of different components of helping children to co-create stories um, around their family with their parents um, as part of the process of disclosing. There were board games, playing cards, a number of different storybooks. And certainly all of those influenced motivation, but I wanted to just focus on the mother's HIV story. So although the intervention came out of a, a piece of formative work where, where mothers of this age group of children were saying, this is the real challenge we're facing and we need interventions to, to support us around this. We still went into the intervention design knowing that HIV is very stigmatized. It can be quite emotional and difficult to talk about. Um, and that we're not starting from a situation where there's necessarily high motivation to participate. And so um, we, we did, just tried something out that worked very well. It was called My HIV Love Story. 
and it involved the lay counsellor who was counselling the mother, not to start with the regular question that you saw in public health um, interventions, which was tell me about when you got HIV infected or tell me who infected you with HIV, but instead just ask the mother to close your eyes. They both did it together. So it was building a, a feeling of trust and vulnerability, allowing vulnerability to be present. And then asking the mother to cast her mind back and remember the first time she had that feeling of love, the butterflies. And developing a story together with the mom using some art activities around, um, you know, those kinds of feelings. I think it was a really important part of the, the intervention for a few reasons. Firstly, I think that it changed the tone of the counselling a lot um, in a sense that mothers were allowed to put some of their own um, frame and experience and context to their disclosure process from the beginning. It also um, made some quite strategic changes in the nature of the relationship between the counsellor and the mother. So we would, uh, we, you know, counsellors and mothers had related to us that they would often just feel that they could go into this shared space where there was joking and laughing about common teenage experiences, for example. So I think just allowing, it sounds like a simple thing, but allowing a woman who has largely been um, sort of labeled as being HIV positive and is having interventions directed at her, the opportunity to frame her own story um, and to, to find a, po a positive place to start certainly helped us. And we had very high uptake and very high rates of disclosure. And I think a lot of what the formative work told us in women's own words was that they felt humanized. And by feeling humanized, they felt like they could trust the intervention or they could at least try and be open to what the intervention might offer. So I leave it there. Thanks so much, Tamsin. Again, uh, a really fascinating testimony from, from your experience with, with, with storytelling and intervention. I mean, there, there are a number of different ways we can go, and I'm sure we'll, we'll end up circling through all of them. But um, just, just to move the, the conversation, as it were, to, to the next phase, I'd like to... Um, turn to each one of you in, in the reverse order in which we, we just heard from you and ask you, it's a very concrete question. Um, I'm really struck by how all three of you from your different perspectives have talked about the real importance of stories of the self uh, and framing your own story, being able to tell your own story, validate your um, you know, how you feel about your body or validate your experience or, um, you know, see yourself in the oral tradition. Um, what in your different projects um, particularly helped with framing that story of the self? I'm, I'm really thinking of very practical techniques. You know, did, did you use certain props? Um, I, I, I was noticing, Aluda, that you, for example, talked about, you know, hashtag um, Black Girl Magic. Um, were, was social media helpful in, in that example? Um, yeah, if you could just talk a bit about the props that you've used um, and the techniques that have been that have been particularly helpful, Tamsin. Uh, I mean, you can perhaps just sort of, as it were, continue the ba the baton uh, from what you were just saying. Yeah. I think certainly creating an environment and a space and a tone where stories are welcome is key. And obviously, I focused mainly on maternal and child health and child and parent mental health. So I think for us, activity and play 
um, and being able to talk through something um, while doing activity has always been a really helpful tool. So um, using card games and things that you can do while having a discussion certainly helps around difficult um, psychological discussions. I think also that um, what, what we found helps a lot is um, that, um, you know, somebody needs a place to start. Or if you say to somebody, tell me your life story, they, they can often get caught and um, a little worried about what your expectation of their life story is. And so I think having these simple tools that, that start at a very simple place or give a bit of direction, when did you first fall in love? Or tell me your life story. It gives you something to hang on to as a storyteller. And know, okay, I'm going to begin my plot at this place and I'm going to introduce you to some really important characters. So I think using tools and activities that are not so directly focused on the individual, but kind of creates a storytelling environment where there's an openness to where the story is going to go. So, so interesting, Tamsa. If I can just pick up on one thing um, so that we can, as it were, because this is an audio um, medium uh, conversation, um, you know, we, we, we'd like to see what this thing is. So you talked about card games. What kinds of cards are these, these prompts to... The, um, the women to, to, to tell their stories to their children? So we had a very simple, um, what we called the HIV disclosure card, which was um, a body map really um, out that the mom would use. And she had a series of stickers. And so the game involved her telling a story and teaching the child about viruses in a broad way um, and specifically naming HIV. So kind of using little sticker dots to say, you know, Sometimes infections come into our body um, and then our T-cells and they had little stickers that they could put on. So it really gave her a script with the child to talk about um, the process of infection through to I take medication and this helps me to stay well. Because what mothers had told us was the hardest part to imagine doing was to say it out loud. But the literature told us that if you say it out loud, it's a lot easier for you and for the child. And so she could just rhythmically go straight on to so I have HIV and HIV is my body and repeat the story as related to her um, as a way to go forward. So it's just a, sim I, I don't know if that's a simple enough example for you and um, where no, that, sort of activity yeah. helps. That, that's, that, that's so evocative. Um, and I was really struck, and this might be a, a good bridge to moving to, to, to Robert's um, example, um, I was really struck by your saying that they moved rhythmically to then talking about being HIV positive. Um, did rhythm or um, similar techniques come into either of your projects, Robert, that you were telling us about the, um, you know, the, the oral tradition project or, or the reading to succeed project? Could you tell us a bit about the techniques or the props that you used? Yes. Yes, thank you very much. The, the techniques are really, uh, what I wanted to do was not to scare the reader. So I used the uh, a technique of like as if I'm actually telling a traditional story when I wasn't. So what you do then is to try to seduce the reader that this is kind of familiar. You, you have a once upon a time to start with, but then what happens after that phrase is not once upon a time as in, in, in a long time ago, but in the present. So I used um, a technique which you can call distanciation 
you place something in terms of tradition in the past, but then you move, you, you kind of change perspective to the present. But um, the idea being as in uh, uh, traditional storytelling is that if you want to really pass a message and you want it to be very effective, do not personalize it. Do not say it happened to you, to, to the person right in front of you, because people have got defensive, uh, self-defense kind of mechanisms. The moment the story is pointed at them, they might not understand it or they might resist it. So I would still be able to say this happened somewhere uh, and then change the characters, although the message is very, is very uh, like pertinent to the present. Let me give an example of what I did with a story that was dangerously uh, political, but which I took from, uh, from oral tradition. And when I told this story, uh, it was a children's story that I told. That, that is the year in 2017 that there was a coup in Zimbabwe and Robert Mugabe was uh, overthrown. And that story, I did not quite know that it had resonance with the political temperature uh, in Zimbabwe the, at that time, and I went to read the story there. So the story was uh, about a, uh, from an oral tradition about how animals were faced with a, with a drought and every one of them threatened with death. So what do you do? So, so what, what, what you can do, you can read whatever you like uh, from there about what that drought is. It could be political, it could be in, any, in, in many senses. And that's what, what seemed to have happened. Uh, that it was a political drought and people needed to do something about it. So um, one animal stood up and said, let's dig a well so that we all survive. And, and another animal, the hare, said, I'm not going to do that because in the past, you guys, I've not worked with you before and I don't like you because you've got the habit of drinking all the water when we find it. And uh, you have the tendency of wanting to eat me when you, when you have run out of meat. So I'm just saying it in, 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 in brief. So the, the technique there then is to say, okay, these are animals. But what I shift from there now is the moment the uh, the hair is found uh, and is going is punished for not participating in the in the project, I introduce the uh, a different technique. And this is taken from rights reading, uh, the rights reading environment. Uh, where I read human rights into a traditional story that did nothing to do with human rights, because the, in the traditional story, you would probably celebrate the, the ways in which human rights are, or animal rights are not respected. When, when you, know, you celebrate that, when the hair is punished, you celebrate, but you never get to understand why the hair has got an individual choice to make. He does not have to participate in this in this project, collective project, because it's inimical to his own interests. So, so I, I, I read it that way. And some people uh, who were in the audience, some of them, you know, coming from the establishment itself, uh, decided that what I was doing was to be reading about the uh, fermenting political discontent in the country, where everybody was being forced to go into agriculture to save the country, but it was not working. And, and a very good example, I think, of, um, of how a traditional story can work to distance um, a particularly difficult situation from people that they're finding very difficult to, 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 to talk about. Um, 
Elude, to, to turn now to you and um, still on this question of techniques or prompts, um, Tamsin has talked so interestingly about these prompt cards, body map. Robert has talked more about sort of oral codes and um, this technique of distanciation. Um, you touched earlier on uh, social media. I wondered what um, what particular techniques and props worked well in, in your intervention with storytelling. So I think there are a number of devices really um, that um, these Black women-centered collectives use from poetry, prose, storytelling. But I think it was great when Tamsin spoke about um, in the context of her intervention um, and, and working with the mothers, that creating a space where stories are welcome, you know, these open spaces where stories are welcome is the first step and really critical to the success of, of, of the, the method. And so for example, with one of the collectives, um, the Feminist Stockfell, which is eight black women coming together, their whole mission was not only to create a space where stories are welcome, but to create a space where Black women can feel safe to speak, um, to speak their stories, um, to provide a counter narrative to the single story and um, the perception and historical uh, perception of Black women as caregivers, as reproductive vessels who are not allowed to be, for example, beautiful um, or sexual. And then also, I really appreciated how Robert spoke to his intervention as not only about children's literacy, but also about representation. And I think that's also another thing that's critical about this Black Girl Magic hashtag is about representation. It's about identification. Another one of the women in the feminist Stockfell um, uh, 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 cohort collective, Lebohang Masango is a sought after poet and she wrote a children's book called Mbumi's Magic Beads. Um, about friendship between a group of primary school aged black girls who admire one another's beautiful African hair um, because hair is so political um, for black women. Um, Audrey Lord, she reminds us that, that, that um, organizing and reflecting on current issues is really a pragmatic framework to work around structural violence. So for example, Feminist Stockfell um, held an, um, an event called the Hair Soiree, where women raising black children were invited to come and discuss and get information on how to care for their children's hair. So that's a very pragmatic discussion and workshop stemmed from the recognition that there's so much politics and pain around um, something that might seem uh, superficial to others, but is actually extremely coded um, and loaded for black women. Another collective, um, the, the For Black Girls Only Collective, FBGO, um, they, they enact their mission in a number of ways. So they use visual art, they use film, they use writing, they use dance and poetry to kind of execute their work, um, to, to share and analyze and produce knowledge about contemporary uh, black girlhood and, and black womanhood. What I think ultimately is really important is Audre Lorde has this really important essay called Poetry is Not a Luxury. So while these methodologies, you know, poetry and prose and dance and visual art, they might seem inconsequential to some, 
But Lord reminds us in our essay, Poetry is Not a Luxury, that something like poetry is not to be taken lightly because it's a manifestation of ideas and experiences that haven't yet been crystallized. Like Biko, Steve Biko also writes about the power of poetry for Black people. And he talks about how with us, with Africans, music and rhythm are not luxuries, but part and parcel of our communication. Um, and so poetry and these safe spaces where stories can be told provide a self-exploratory and freeing space that works against the historical silencing um, of our stories. So, so fascinating. I was, I was really noticing in the responses that um, each one of you gave um, the emphasis on, on the one hand, safe spaces and creating spaces where we can share our vulnerabilities, be open about our vulnerabilities, but then also the fact that sometimes stories have dangerous content or potentially painful content, as in an HIV disclosure story or uh, a story from oral tradition about the hare who, you know, hogs all the water and, and that can be interpreted um, politically. So moving on now to the stage in our discussion where we are thinking about, you know, moving forward and recommendations that we can glean from our experience that we might want to let others know about who are also involved in implementing interventions in various African contexts. I wondered if um, you had any thoughts and now I'd like to move to the first order that we had um, of uh, Alude and Robert and Tamsin, um, I'd, I'd like to ask about um, how you balanced in your work that very um, sort of fragile and very, very crucial um, interchange of safety and feeling secure and safe in a story, sharing a story, against the often necessarily quite dangerous material that um, the stories unfold. You can take that in, in I leave, I'm leaving the question quite open so you can take it in different directions. Um, and if you need a moment to think of it, I realize that you've just been speaking, Alude, and, and um, um, as it were, putting the ball in your court again, um, you, you, you may want to pass on, on to Robert uh, if you wish, and I'll come back to you. Um, but anyway, I mean, maybe I can leave it open. Any, would anyone like to um, offer any thoughts about this, about recommendations and balancing safety and danger? Robert. Oh, okay, no, no uh, it was not really a, a staggering insight that I was going to share. I was just thinking aloud and saying uh, the the kinds of uh, because it's, I think Salude was talking about poetry um, and and what it does that is to some extent uh, a precursor to form the thought. So mm -hmm. I was just thinking of uh, uh, the the way we came into these kinds of story interventions in a repressive space, a dangerous space, and you need to pick up a voice. And we had to read a, a poem by Mutabaruka, the Jamaican poet, uh, it was called this poem. Uh, we used it, we, we pretended that all we were doing is to dramatize it. We were simply reciting it. And, and then it gave birth to spoken word activism in, in Zimbabwe. And now there's a plethora of organizations around spoken word activism. 
but it, it, it just started off by saying we're just reciting. So the beauty of the poem was in the recitation rather than in the content and the content remained very dangerous. So you could say the poem to, to, uh, in front of people that could arrest you, but then they will be more entertained by the recitation, by the voice. And then think about the content when you are gone. Then they realize you're actually dangerous, but you are gone, you're outside of that particular space. So that's one thing I was just thinking of as you were asking what the recommendations might be. Um, but, but, but one thing I would say about the recommendation will be uh, the issue of relatability, that if people can relate to what you're saying and relating in two ways, well, relating doesn't mean I agree with you. It might just mean I do identify with what you're saying, but I might just decide not to take it further. So you can relate with the content, but not necessarily agree with, um, with what somebody is saying. And you, as, as a storyteller, you can survive some very dangerous situations that way when you created that kind of uh, ambiguity uh, between relatability and identification. And by the time people join the dots, you are gone, but the message has been <laughs> delivered. Thank you. Yeah, I mean, I think even beyond relatability and, and certainly the context I'm looking at, absolutely relatability, but also there's power in numbers, right? So it's the collectivity, it's it's the group, the grouping and the organizing as 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 collectives, which is what you know these women are doing. So you know, another example is, is the IKEA Collective. This is a collective of 11 Black female artists who realized that um, the art world in South Africa is a white boys club. And these were all undergraduate and graduate students at the University of Cape Town's Michaela School of Fine Art, which is a really kind of elitist school where Black students are in the minority. And um, Ikea recognized the lack of recognition that Black women individually were getting in, um, in, uh, in, in South Africa's art landscape. And they pointed that as the reason for reuniting. So it's kind of ironic that in order for their individual practices to be recognized, they had to form a collective. But what was amazing was that the original frustration um, that was the catalyst for them joining forces um, led to this collective of women becoming extremely significant and influential. So I think um, the relatability, yes, the identification, yes, as who they are as black women, but also the importance of um, the group, the importance of um, collective mobilization um, and organizing. Fantastic, Olude and, and, and Robert. Um, in, in your experience, Tamsin, do you, do you, have you um, had any similar related experiences about balancing danger and difficulty against safety and sharing comfortably? Um, I feel like it's, it's potentially a bit shallow, but I think almost in the opposite direction, thinking about, because I work in public health, I think... I've had more experiences of people who come from a health background feeling so concerned about danger um, that they feel a need to control an intervention so much that it becomes very relevant to them, but not at all relevant to the person who is supposed to be um, supported by the intervention. So I think you can think about danger in a number of different ways. And I think as, 
for myself as a person who designs interventions, I think it's also important for us to reflect on what danger are we bringing for people and what barriers might we place in them being able to harness what we are able to give in a meaningful way in their own lives. So, you know, the hundreds of systematic reviews will tell, well, not hundreds, but a lot of systematic reviews will tell you that if, you, you know, you can have the best working intervention ever in, in health particularly and people don't take it up or people use it in a way they're not supposed to. And so I think it's important for us also to just reflect that these ideas of danger, these ideas of difficult truth are created by ourselves. That's part of our story. And I think we have a responsibility to try and make sure that we hold that. It, it, it can be very helpful. It's certainly be help, been helpful in my life to help me kind of be motivated in my own work. But I think stories can change and stories are alive and stories can be reinterpreted. And I think so in our Amagugu work, it was very much about saying there is there is difficult things to talk about, but you can talk about difficult things. Um, you know, and difficult things help you then build a different story. Not spoken about things become more dangerous. So um, I think it is really just about, um, for me, about reflecting on what do I bring? What do I consider dangerous? And why do I consider it dangerous content or approach? Um, and I think engaging, like with your intended target, I suppose, if I call it that, um, and being able to embrace the other a little bit and feel that uncomfortableness of, you know, in, in our current formative work in eight countries, people don't always want to do everything the way I suggest. And, you know, as someone who's trying to help somebody else, that does, of course, create an uncomfortableness. So I don't know if I'm really on topic, but that's what I have to offer. No, no, that, I, that, that's fascinating and, and absolutely, yeah. absolutely on topic. Um, Aluda, did, did, did you want to come in there? No, I just thought it was a really important point. I mean, I haven't been speaking in this conversation in the context of my own, my own, um, you know, research that I lead. But certainly, as researchers and as scientists, um, we arrive with our own set of narratives and our own stories, and 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 that's critical to remember our own social identities. And it's critical to remember that the people that we work with that they, we need to be led and, and, and guided essentially, but by their own stories. So Tamsin, I think is flagging something really important. Yeah, I was just thinking of some interventions that were made in the past. One example being um, where you, 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 you say uh, the government must intervene to help children who are starving. And, and then you write stories that promote the need for government to feed the people or to feed children. And that in, in some places it resulted in what was called the food for work, where if you cannot afford the food, you go and work for it on government projects like digging wells, deep wells, like, like resurfacing roads and all this. And in the end, what it then did was to create dependence even amongst the children who realized that all you needed to do was not to think about anything else outside of food for work. And in my own story for the Cadbury uh, project, I did a story in which a dog decided that um, uh, his master was taking too long to marry and he was not uh, feeding him well. So he decides that if the, uh, the, the master gets a wife, then he will be properly fed himself because 
there would be every need to have food in the house. But it backfires because he leads the master to a python that now kind of uh, squeezes him in his coils, in, in, a, in a coils and his ribs are crushed. So it was kind of a, a story about uh, the, the, between the structure, the intention, the motivation for, for an intervention and how it pans out and the outcome might not be intended. So, so we should be thinking in terms of matching these two, the intention and the outcome. Uh, and, uh, and the outcome may be immediate, but it might also be long-term. And one needs to be thinking about what kind of story we tell and what its outcome might be. Is it the intended one? And how do we ensure that it is exactly the intended one? Knowing that stories also provide us opportunities to, to have many interpretations. So what kind of interpretation are we, are, we, are we gunning for that ensures the outcome that we really need? So I think that could be a source of potential danger if we don't work it out properly. Thank you. What, what is so interesting about the example um, you just uh, used there, Robert, and, um, and also uh, about what Tamsin and Aluda were saying is, um, is, is that emphasis also on stories as reinterpretations. You know, every story is, is a kind of, it's not only a representation, but it's also often a reinterpretation of other stories or, or parts of stories that we have heard. Stories have that amazing freedom of allowing us to, um, to bring our own interpretation into, into a story, um, to give a different perspective um, and, um, and to relate the story to our particular situation. With that in mind, and um, I'm moving now to, to our, our conclusion, um, I wondered if I can take a motif from, uh, from, from, um, from storytelling, one tradition of storytelling anyway, uh, the fairy godmother. If, if there were a fairy godmother and um, she or he um, was to say to each one of us, um, um, you know, you have um, a big budget and um, you can compose and set up your own storytelling intervention. Um, just off the top of your head, um, I would like this to be as spontaneous as possible. What would be the thing that um, you would recommend in the context of the different projects that you have touched on? And I'm going to go, this is our last round, I'm going to go back to the order of Tamsin, Robert, and then Alude, and then we'll close. Um, so Tamsin, putting the ball in your court. <laughs> I might be coming a bit left field, but, you know, the first thing that came to my mind when you said unlimited budget, I think like I wouldn't, I couldn't think of a single storytelling intervention I would want to do, but I would want to have a really powerful campaign that helps people understand that um, individualizing something, making it relevant, salient to their lives as lived does not mean that you can't scale it. It doesn't mean that it has less meaning or um you know and so i think what i come up against a lot in public health is this belief that as soon as something becomes sensitive as soon as something takes time worries about a story worries about the perspective of the participant it's not scalable when a lot of the things that you're talking about are such a natural part of culture 
that you don't, you know, it's it's already, it's the scalers that are the ones that should be convinced because I think, um, you know, for the rest of us, uh, certainly my lived experience of working um, around interventions in many countries is some of the things that uh, donors or funders would tell me are way too complex for an intervention um, for an, you know, inverted Africa's African population, I think are so simple. They're so simple and they're so relatable. So I think I would want a big public awareness campaign to help people understand that, you know, making something resonate for who, for your target audience is probably likely to be far more scaled. And I think some of what Aluda is talking about in, in the hashtag is, is a perfect example of that. When things are, when you're willing to just light the fire instead of control the fire, um, I think things can really have impact. Fantastic, thanks so much. So public awareness campaign, Robert, how about you and your, your, your wish about storytelling? Yeah, uh, if a, a fairy mother were to come out say, there's one thing that's, that I really think is burning in my heart at the moment, and which we have not yet mentioned in our podcast, that is the uh, COVID vaccination drive and all this. So I was just thinking of uh, if one way to have a budget and, and, and come up with a project where adults and children co-create stories about the pandemic, for instance, the experience of the pandemic, because what we tend to see is adults writing for children and reading for children or for, for adolescents or you know, like creating on their behalf. I would like to see the adolescents themselves create on their own behalf. And I would like to see how they would navigate two very powerful stories around the vaccine, for instance. There's the, what is called the anti-vaccine anti-vax, uh, brigade, very strong in terms of its stories and the visuals and the videos and the narratives they bring to support their arguments. And then the pro-vaccine ones. So that socialization at the moment that amongst children would be based on whether somebody has been vaccinated or, or, or not. And I would want to see how children would, would and how adolescents would create that kind of narrative that makes adults vulnerable because they are the ones who are dying the most. And this time around, it's the children that you don't necessarily need to be protecting, but the adults have been put in a very vulnerable position that they are the ones who need to be protected so they can take care of their children. I want to see how this change of paradigm can be articulated as an story intervention uh, around identities, around power, uh, you know, uh, that's what I would wish to, to, to see. Thank Thanks you. Thanks so much. Thanks, Thanks Robert, that's great. Um, I, I heartily wish for that too. Alude, um, your fairy godmother wish in relation to storytelling and intervention. Um, off the top of my head, I, I don't think mine is particularly novel, but I think it's really important. I think in the interest of countering single stories that we've been told for decades and centuries, it's about reclaiming the stories of the past. I mean, I think this is something one of the participants um, in the Vico uh, narr narrative workshop for work package three brought up Elika is um, understanding who we were, who we were um, in order to, to understand who we are now, understanding that we have 
um, a center. We have people whose shoulders we stand on. We have people who have faced the, the troubles and have had the experiences that we experience now. Um, there is nothing new. We all have an or, origin um, and, and a past. And I think it's about highlighting and acknowledging and knowing and learning those stories of the past, bringing them to the fore and seeing what conversations we can have um, about um, those stories of the past, what they mean in the present, how they impact us now, what we can learn from them. Um, so it's about learning who we were, our history, um, stories of our heroes, um, our women heroes. These uh, stories don't get told, they don't get highlighted. Um, many of us don't know them. They certainly don't get taught in schools. Um, and, and you see a lot of interventions and literature and you know, different kinds of efforts to bring those stories to the fore, but I think there's still a lot of work to be done um, and interest to be raised around that kind of thing. So yeah, if the money were endless, I think it would be about um, you know, excavating those stories of who we are, um, you know, those places uh, of origin, um, objects, uh, people, all of that, telling those stories um, and, 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 and having young people kind of um, 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 uh, hear them, understand them, um, uh, uh, relate them to who they are now or how, you know, or maybe not, or how different things are now. Um, that conversation between past and present and future, more importantly, what can we learn about these stories of the past um, to help us to go to where we want to be going in the future? Um, would be my wish list, I guess. Thanks so much. So our recommendations, um, for each one of them very strong um, for narrative interventions going forward are reclaiming the powerful stories of the past in relation to women and to men, um, but in relation in particular to groups overlooked, um, to co-create stories between adults and children in particular um, in the present moment about um, the COVID response and vaccination. And then um, your idea, Tamsin, of um, scaling up and convincing um, the authorities through a public awareness campaign about the absolute vitality and necessity of storytelling in our lives to deliver messages and debate us. Um, that's a fantastic point on which to close. Um, and I'd like to thank you all again, Luda Mahale, Robert Mukonde, Tamsin Rashar from the Accelerate Hub. Um, thanks so much uh, for joining us today and participating in this conversation. Thanks very much for listening to this podcast. Do have a listen to others in this ongoing series on intervention, storytelling, and many other configurations.